Good morning, everyone. Well, welcome again to the class as we continue to study the very particular purpose of God in our marriages. Reminding ourselves of this, that what we are saying about the purpose of God in the marriage is the purpose of God in a very general way in the church. But once it comes to the marriage, the purpose that God is looking to create and fulfill in the marriage is accentuated within the fellowship of the husband and the wife. And I think think we will see some of this beginning today, what that means. Let's open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. As we prepare our hearts, Father, we begin this morning, as always, realizing, recognizing, and acknowledging your presence by the Spirit. Father, for as we open this word, as we read this word, as we share this word, Father, even though this is the living word of our God, it remains a closed and dark book until or unless your presence by your Holy Spirit opens our eyes and our ears and our hearts. Father, thank you for doing this in us who are saved. And Father, this morning, as you minister, as you teach us, as you lead us, as you enlarge your purpose in our understanding, Father, we give you thanks. And we welcome the presence of your spirit among us. And we just ask you to teach us this morning in greater depth than we've ever understood before in Jesus' name. Amen. You remember in chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, Jesus is traveling along to Galilee. And typically, a Jewish man, when he is traveling from Judah to Galilee, he would not go into the land of Samaria. And there's a lot of history about that. But we won't go into that reason. But basically so, because Samaria is that portion of the countryside that is inhabited and populated by a bunch of half-breeds. Now, how many of you know what I mean by, you know, those people? How many of you have a category in your heart and your mind for those people? Come on. Every one of us in here knows what I'm talking about. My category for those people may be different than yours. But all of us have a category, you know, those people. Do you know what I'm talking about? And it was those people. And there's a 
political and there is a religious history there, but they were a combination of people who were somewhat related to the Jews, but they were foreigners, and they had a religion that was a mixture of Judaism and other religions. So it was a mixture. And so to the Jewish man who wanted to be a purist in his devotion to God and in his understanding of what it meant to be a child of Abraham, he didn't go into Samaria if he had to. I mean, if, if, unless he had to. They were half-breeds. But Jesus goes. He goes. And you remember he encounters a woman at the well. And they begin to talk about spiritual things. And the woman says, you know, I perceive that you're a prophet. If there's something about you, and there's a reason for this, that I know that you are from God. I see and hear in you the truth about God. Are we doing worship right or are y'all doing worship? How should we worship? Should we sit here? Should we sit here? Should women uh, be on this side and men on that side? Should we wear suits? Is it okay to come with blue jeans? How should we worship? Should we worship on this mountain or, you know, you Jews say we should. You understand. And Jesus says this in verse 23. Look at verse 23. 423 of John. A time is coming and has now come. Now, when you get a Bible verse that's significant, make sure you underline it. It's okay to underline and write in your Bibles. A time is coming and has now come. Very important. Jesus is talking about something that has been anticipated and that's something that is here now. When the true worshipers, look at that, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers whom the Father seeks. God is seeking a people whose lives will be a living worship of him. But not only a living worship of him, but a living worship of him that displays the truth. The truth about what? The truth about his triunity. The truth about who God is in himself. For God is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Not just telling the truth and being truthful. But our lives and our relationships. Our desires and our purposes and our motivations. Everything would have one goal in mind. One central, fundamental goal. And that is that in me personally, in us as a church, and in the marriage of a man and a woman, the most important truth about God is revealed. And that is our God is not a singularity, but he is a plurality, a father, Son and Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says, Worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so, in effect, Jesus is telling her that in order to know and worship God, she must worship him and know him as a Trinity. And there are many verses we could give to substantiate that, but 
somewhat beyond what I want to do this morning, what I feel the Holy Spirit is leading me to do. Only in the knowledge of God's triunity can God be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And I hope and am confident that is what the Holy Spirit is doing among us over the last several weeks is expanding our understanding of his purpose and what is meant by him when he says, my people display me. And so it is the truth of God's triunity that is to be imaged in and through us as a church, and it is the truth about God's triunity that is to be on public, clear, dramatic, consistent display in our marriages. If you want to know why God brought you and that other person, the husband and the wife, if you want to know why God married you two, he did it for this purpose, that in that relationship, his triunity, the truth of who he is in himself, and the truth about how these three persons of the Godhead relate and fellowship and through their roles and through their service, that's the truth that is going to be displayed either accurately or inaccurately in our marriages. And that, I believe, is the very heart and the essence of what God desires to do, not only in the church in general, but very specifically coming down to the marriages as the one purpose that controls everything that is to be done in a marriage and how the marriage is to work out. That's what our marriage is all about. That's why it's so significant to God. This is why marriage is built on the rock of the Father, the rock of the Son, and the rock of the Holy Spirit simultaneously. How often do we think of the rock as only Jesus? Well, certainly he is. But the rock is God, the Father. The rock is God, the Son. And the rock is God, the Holy Spirit. And that's the rock upon which our marriages are to be built. And that's the rock that is to be displayed through our marriages. And upon this foundation will our marriages fulfill God's creative intention, the display of his triune or his Trinitarian nature and his Trinitarian character. So let's remind you, let's be reminded of the definition that we've shared in here about God's trinity. In the one being of God, there exists three. Is it written in your notes? In the one being of God, and you should know this. We have to know this. This is part of the final exam. Ah, okay, now we're going to write write it down. You see, once you know it's going to be on a final exam. I used to be a teacher, remember? All of a sudden, the students, important, important, important. Slow down, Mr. Davidson. Would you slow down? I need to, didn't catch that last word you said. In the one being of God, there exist three co-eternal, co-equal, distinct, Divine persons, 
each of whom possess fully in himself the very same nature, the very same divine nature, simultaneously. Now, if you want me to repeat that word for word, you're going to have to get the tape. And if you didn't get it all and you want it all, there will be people around you who got part of it, this part, that part, and we'll put it all together. That's, that is a definition. The, the Trinity can be defined two or three different ways, in, in, each getting at its substance, but you know, using you know, terminologies that mean the same. And you see, it is this divine community that is to be imaged in the community of the marriage. It is this divine community that the community of the church is all about. We are here for one purpose. We have been saved and are being sanctified for one purpose. So that in this community, in my and your marriages... The divine community may be clearly and compellingly and consistently displayed to all the world. That the world may know that our God, he is God. Amen? And that he is a great God. Now, since each person of the Godhead possesses this, I didn't say share. Because if John and I share something, I may have some of it and you may have some of it. Don't say share. They don't share. But the Father fully possesses the divine nature in himself. But not by himself. The Son fully possesses the divine nature in himself. But not by himself. The Holy Spirit fully possesses the divine nature in himself. But not by himself. Now, if you can get your head around that, you're a whole lot better person than I am. I still don't get it. Phil, you're an elder. Do you get it? You're just shaking your head. You see, you're like I am. What do you do? What, you can't even answer. And I forgot what I was going to say about that. <laughs> Phil sidetracked me there. <laughs> Since each person of the Trinity possesses the same nature, the same purpose, the same attributes, the same power, the same omnipotence, the same omniscience, the same etc., etc., how do we distinguish them or differentiate them as distinct persons? You can't say the Father loves, therefore I distinguish the Father by his love because the Son also loves. The Holy Spirit also loves. Well, the Father is all-powerful. So is the Son and so is the Holy Spirit. How do we distinguish them? Through their distinctive roles. And here we come to where the rubber hits the road in how to image and what to image in our marriages and in the church. We are those people in whom and through whom God has established 
his desired roles for each one of us to be displayed within this community of the church and to be displayed between the husband and the wife in such a way that the roles of these three distinct persons of God not only may be identified, but may be marveled at this God. I'll ask you a question that bothers me to ask it about me. Husbands, does your wife, your children, your family, your friends, when they see you, do they marvel at God? Wives, the same question. And that goes for others in the church. This is what God is after. That the world, the church, the angels, the demonic powers may marvel at the wisdom of God. May have their breath taken away, Jude, by, ah, I see God. And not only, Billy, do I see God, but, ah, that's the God. That is incredible. It is an incredible God that you are meant. I just don't see anything anywhere in any other relationship, in any other activity, anywhere in this created order. I don't see God except in you because he's so unique. That uniqueness is displayed only one place, and that is in the people of God, and most specifically in the husband and wife relationship. So this morning, we're going to begin to look at the distinctive roles of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, how they relate to one another within the divine community of the Godhead. Uh, somebody has to get these elders to give us four or five hours in the morning. That's just all there is to it. Or make me speed up or do something. I don't know. In preparing to do this, let's remember Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Let's remember that. Remember that this is the, the passage. It's probably one of the most quintessential significant passages in the entire New Testament. And I don't ask you to memorize it, although that would be good to do. And I need to take that advice also. But I do ask you to know where it is. And that it is one of the most essential passages concerning the triunity of God displaying the distinctive roles of the three members of God that we need to see. So make sure you know 1 Corinthians 3 to 14 where Paul explains our salvation in Trinitarian roles. How? As he distinguishes the roles of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So look at the verses. Verses 3-6. The role of the Father in sending the Son. Verses 7 to 12, the role of the Son in obeying to be sent. Verses 13 and 14, the role of the Spirit 
in applying or making good the father's decision to send the son and the son's decision to be sent to apply the good and the result of that great cooperation in our lives to save us and to sanctify us. So let's look at some of the New Testament scriptures. And what we're going to find is this. That the picture of God, the truth about God, remember, worship him in spirit and truth, is not a bunch of doctrinal statements in the New Testament, in the Gospels. But the picture of God is a living painting as Jesus himself is the Father's paintbrush. Jesus himself is the very paintbrush of God the Father. As God the Father, by the Spirit, takes the life of Jesus in what he says and what he does and who he is in himself. As he takes the life of Jesus and begins to paint the picture of himself, he begins to paint the picture of the Son And he begins to paint the picture of the Holy Spirit. And so what we see is this, that the revelation of the Trinity is seen and demonstrated only through one means. By looking at, knowing, and understanding the person and work of Christ. The role of the Father. May I remind you of this. And I don't know whether it's in your notes or not. The Father is fully God in himself, but not by himself. Being co-equal and co-eternal with the Son and with the Spirit. Possessing the very same divine nature simultaneously with the Son and with the Spirit. Remember that as we go through this. Because if we're not careful, we'll begin to distinguish the Father in a way that separates him from the Son and from the Spirit. And we should never do that. There is a mistake that is made so often. We are not to be separating these. We are to be distinguishing them because they are three as one. They are inseparable. So let's make sure we don't separate them inadvertently or even purposely. So in the New Testament, the Father is identified, I'll go through this very quickly, by the name Father. Jesus uses the name Father 40 different times. And so that's clear. God is the Father because Jesus says, my Father, the Father. God is also identified as the Father through the word theos, T-H-E-O-S, or the word God. Theos is the Greek for God. So for instance, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there are many passages which say God, God. And with very few exceptions, those passages are a statement about the Father. So you remember in Ephesians chapter 1 again. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then other places he uses just the word God. The context will tell us whether it's God the Father or God in a sense who represents all three of the persons of God. But most of the time, it's God the Father who is being spoken of. So you'll see that distinction. That's how God is identified or that's how the Father is identified. 
Remember in Matthew 6.30, Jesus is speaking, and he says, if God so clothes the field, the, the grass of the field, if God does this, whom is Jesus talking about? The Father. So I think you see that. In John 1.1, 1, 1, remember John 1.1? 1, 1? You may want to turn there if you don't want to. It's okay. The Father is referred to as God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Who is this God? Who is this God? This theos in that verse. Who is he? The Father. The Word is Jesus, and the Word who is Jesus. How do we know that? Because of verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Remember that? And we beheld his glory, that glory as the only begotten of the Father. So we know that Jesus, or the Word, is a divine person. So in the beginning was the Word. There's a divine person right there. And the Word was with God. Uh Uh-oh, now we have two divine persons. They are both divine, but they are distinct. And then you remember in verse 2, it is now the Spirit of God who does what? hovers over or vibrates over the waters. Do you remember that? Three divine persons distinct, yet yet each one of them are in himself, but not by himself. Each one is God. So we see that right there. The name of the Father, the word Father, it has confused many people. Well, Father, I know what Father is. That, that, that's a term that, kid, you're, you, oh, you're a dad? Are you a father? Do you have any children? Too many. Okay. Yes, I understand. When you become a grandfather, you won't ever say that word again. Not even in joking. Right, Phil? For Phil. I'm picking on Phil. Who else is a grandfather in here? Bob, you're a grandfather. Butch, all of us. But look, are you a father? Your children became children because you had a union with a woman, your wife. And so typically to the world, world, the word father expresses a sexual union. And so when they read the Bible, oh, wow, that means some kind of way God had sex or some kind of way, you know, that, that this is something that, no. The Bible, the word father here is a relational title, a relational title. It's not a physical or a, you know, biological title. It's a title of relationship. And again, there's much to say about that, but we don't have time today. And so, the Father is a relational title that expresses, and here's very important to get this. Hopefully, it's in your notes. The name Father expresses God's role as Father in relation to the Son and to the Spirit. That's why he's Father. He's only Father as he is distinguished from the Son And the Spirit. He's Father in relation to the Son and to the Spirit. What does that mean? Who is or who should be the leader of the household? Which person? Come on, it's okay to say it. There's no political problem here. Come on, somebody said, oh, we're going to be sued here or CNN around here somewhere or whatever, you know. know, Someone's going to come in here and whatever. We need to say to the world, the man is the head of Of the household. Why? Because you see, God is the head of the heavenly community. He is the leader of the community. That's why 
1 Corinthians 11.3 says, God is the head over Christ. Christ is the head over the man, and the man is the head over the woman. Now, when the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11.3, God the Father is the head over Christ, does that mean that Jesus has a less significant role? Does that mean that Jesus is demeaned and put down? Come on. No. Does that mean that Jesus is bossed around and controlled? No. No. Think about it. The eternal Father, the eternal Son, the eternal Spirit have always, always existed as a community in which the Father leads joyfully and lovingly, leads the Son, and the Son is joyfully and lovingly submitted to the Father's joyful, loving leadership, as also is the Spirit. Now, you see, this, this rattles us a little bit because we don't get this and we don't, we don't function this way, do we? And there has never been a time when this is not. How do I know? Because what does Malachi say? Yahweh, I, Yahweh, I, God, the Lord, I do not change. And if there was ever a time when the father wasn't father in relation to the son and the spirit, there was a change in that relationship. Therefore, either that verse is wrong or God is eternally this way. He didn't become the father of the son when the son was born because he was the father of the son. Therefore, the son was born to declare the father's fatherhood. Do we get that? Because there's some believers who think Jesus Christ or the Son became the Son when he was... No, he was always the eternal Son of God. I need to move along here. So we see this and we saw that in Ephesians 3.6. The Father initiates. He takes the position of leadership in our salvation. Ephesians 3, I'm sorry, 1, 3 through 6. He initiates. When you look at the words, you'll see God the Father takes the initiative. And he initiates by sending the Son and the Spirit into the world to save us all for his glory. Now, how do we know this? Well, we know this not only through Paul's statement, but Paul could be wrong. Maybe Paul made a mistake. Maybe this was an understanding which we see in some theological circles that this book of Ephesians was read, was written years and years later after the church developed its theology differently or more profoundly or whatever. And then this was brought in and the church really didn't have this in the beginning. Well, let's just look at that for a moment very briefly and look at the role of the father in relation to Jesus through Jesus' own words. Through the life and ministry of Jesus, we know that the father takes the lead as Jesus paints the picture of the Trinity through his words and deeds. Turn to John 4, 34. Well, I better not. I have four, five, six verses here. But you may want to write them down if they're not in your notes. John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Who's him? 
He's been speaking about the Father desires, remember, worship in spirit and truth. Remember that. And to accomplish his work. Whose work? The Father's work. Yeah, but it's still the work of the Son. It's the Son's work, but it's the Father's work. The Father's work in initiating, the Son's work in obeying. 536 of John. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish... The very work that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus is here on behalf of the sending authority of his Father to which he joyfully submits and has always been this way in that relationship within the Trinity. 638, John, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. 1436 of John, but the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So is it clear? There's so many other verses. Is it clear? Now, what is the Father's motivation? Why does the Father do this? Turn to John three sixteen and 17. We know this, but let's look at it this time within Trinitarian terms. Let's not look at it this time with just Jesus alone. You know, it's just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. If we were like that, he would correct us. Or just the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would correct us. And let's read this passage now within the context of the divine community, within the divine community, the father exercises his eternal divine authority. The son submits to that eternal divine authority. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has given him all, given all things into his hand. Chapter 5, verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing and greater works than these he will show him so that we may marvel. That we may marvel what? That we may marvel at this kind of love, this kind of love, which so graciously and selfishly, so sacrificially, so givingly serves us. As we see that servanthood of the Father's servanthood sending his Son as the servant in order to bring us into his community. You see, this is a revelation of love that no one and nowhere has. This is a revelation of the unique Kadesh, remember? One and only kind of love. This means that God saves us. Why? To reveal to us and through us the holy love that is expressed within the community of God among the three people or persons of God. 
That's why he saved us. So that we would be drawn into that community. Remember 2 Peter 1.4, partakers of the divine nature. And we would become partakers, co-participants in experiencing and expressing that love. It is the Father's great desire and selflessness to express this love in a way so he creates a creation and creates people so that in them the Father's love for the Son and the Son's reciprocal obedient love for the Father and also for the Spirit that that community of love may be clearly and compellingly demonstrated in the church of his people and in marriages. You see, because the Father desired to display the glory of his own love within the fellowship of these three distinct divine persons, who each are fully God in himself, but not by himself, who function in a community through distinctive roles, roles of love. This is what God is after, to image this about God. This is why he sent his son into the world. See, as we're going to hear from Jesus next week, it is this love that was communicated in the Father's sending and in his obedience to be sent. What's the result of this? What is the result of this love of God? The result of this love of God is the creation of the cosmos. The result of this kind of love is the creation of humanity. Genesis one twenty six. Let us make man in our image, in the image of our love, in the image of our community, in the image of our distinctive roles, in the image of who we are together collectively and individually. This is the image of God that God is after in the church and specifically in our marriages. This is the image. And what is the result? After the fall... God sends his son who not, is not made in the image of God, but who is the image of God. Remember Colossians 1.15, Hebrews 1.3. He is the image of the invisible God, the exact character or replication or image of God in Hebrews 1.3. And here is God's image upon the earth in a man. Here is a man who is sent by the love of God and who obeys the love of God in such a way that clearly fulfills the love that is within God among the three persons of God. The result of it is our salvation. You see, because what has happened in our salvation... And you see this in John 17, 26 as a reference for you. You see it in Romans 5, 5 as a reference for you. 
You see it in Ephesians 2.4 as a reference for you. You see it in 1 John 3.1 as a reference for you. What this means is this. God by the Spirit, because of his loving sending of the Son, because of the Son's loving obedience to the Father, and because of the loving sending of the Holy Spirit, who lovingly obeys the will of the Father as accomplished by the Son, now that same love which exists within God among the three persons of God now exists in each one of us who are believers. And God the Spirit is in the process through the work of sanctification and transforming us and conforming us to the image of this God of love is conforming us into that very love, that unique love, by the power of that unique love so that we may be a living display on earth as a community and especially the husband and wife of this unique God. Amen. Next week, we'll talk about the Spirit, the Son, and the Spirit. Thank you.